This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Bors and Isabel Hardman. So tomorrow the government will be announcing a bit more about their plan on small boats, but we've heard a little bit about it today. What do we know, Katie? This is a legislation which Rishi Sunak has been promising since before Christmas. And I think it's probably of all the various things he can do, viewed by MPs as one of the most, if not the most important in terms of the next election and just in terms of general government business because of how much the issue of small boats has grown both in terms of the number of uh, people coming to the UK but also the number of constituents and obviously the two are linked who are, who are now mentioning to the point now where I think perhaps even a year and a half, two years ago, I think some of the, uh, you know, perhaps more blue wall MPs who would be uh, slightly appalled at anything cracking down on the human rights laws are now actually quite keen for this legislation because, because they think that there is just a general sense and it's partly if you look at the stories of you know refugees being kept in hotels, holiday camps, it's becoming a very visual and potent electoral issue for Tory MPs. Now, the legislation has taken longer than some MPs would like. You saw last week um, when Rashida was talking about the protocol deal, even you know, in this private address to MPs, many were saying, yes, sure. If it's what you say it is, that's all very well. Mm. But we need to now talk about the boats, which is what's going to move the dial in my constituency. In terms of what this legislation does, it's about trying to close down the various routes for claiming asylum in this country. I think the The principle behind it is very simple, which is if you arrive in the UK illegally, you cannot claim asylum. How they plan to do that, there's some talk of a break on human rights, but it's also looking at how, you know, right to family, modern slavery can be used in many of these appeals and a duty on the Home Secretary to detain and swiftly remove. Now, we'll see the full detail on Tuesday. That's when Sirella Braveman is going to be uh, laying out all the details in the House of Commons. I think there's naturally some scepticism because of the number of times we have been here mm. with conservative governments uh, saying they have this plan to tackle it and then actually doing quite quite little i think with this legislation it's important to see it as one part of the puzzle so the scenario and this is clearly not an overnight one is you have a situation where i think this was likely seems likely to end up in the courts just as uh, the rwanda scheme is the rwanda scheme obviously the government had the court finding saying it was lawful mm. that is being appealed in the court of appeal if the government wins that, you can have a situation where I think best case scenario by the end of the year, you can have a flight take off to Rwanda and by potentially, the end of the year. yeah, and then potentially by March. But these things are, you know, long, complicated court cases on them. But you saw the issue uh, with the Rwanda scheme when they tried to do the first flight that actually lots of the figures on that flight made these claims about their own asylum status mm-hmm. and tried to appeal it to them off. So the idea is this legislation will shut down many of uh, what the government views loopholes on the issue. And then once you get through that point, and I, I don't think this is not going to happen even a matter of months, it's going to take longer. You have a situation where the two then work in lockstep to help secure the fact that you can get people on the plane to Rwanda. And then that encourages other countries to sign up to offshoring agreements with the UK so you can get lots of things going at once and we also of course have the UK Franco summit this week the issue of small boats will come up so that is the best scenario of the government 
As well, Keir Starmer has already come out this morning to say that it's unworkable and there are obviously also ethical concerns that some refugee groups have levied already. But when it comes to whether or not the policy itself will actually work, I mean, does it seem like it actually does fill in the gaps of what the Rwanda plan failed to do in the sense that surely they'll just be subject to lots of legal challenges as well if you're going to say there's going to be lifetime bans on people who arrive by small boats, all of this sort of stuff. I mean, some MPs are saying maybe Rishi Sunak actually just leave the Europe Court of Human Rights. Yeah, and this is one of the interesting things about this policy is that it is about signalling a seriousness. And, you know, its proponents say that as much as anything else, it will scare people off from trying. But there's there's sort of a, a number of interesting dynamics. One is what happens if it doesn't make any difference. So when you talk to those who are particularly in favour of it and who can't understand why Rishi Sunak has had it sitting on his desk for so long. They are adamant that it it probably, they say, will work in time for the next election. I say, well, you know, what what if it doesn't work? What if you still have this very visible problem of lots and lots of people coming over the channel um, in small boats? Your voters are actually going to penalise you twice over because they're already cross about this and not just from a sort of particularly anti-immigration constituency of voters. It's also people who are upset by the hotel bookings. You have those voters who are already angry. Then you promise them that you're going to stop one of the things that's making them really angry. And then it manifestly doesn't happen. And that goes against one of the the things that Rishi Sunak is repeatedly trying to do, which is to under-promise and over-deliver. For Labour, it's interesting because your question about whether this is actually going to work, Cindy, is the sort of question that Labour has really spent most of its time asking about most policies since Keir Starmer became leader, and particularly in the home affairs area, because you have Yvette Cooper as Shadow Home Secretary, whose modus operandi is very much to say, this is an ineffectual government, it's not running properly, we would do things properly, as opposed to we would have a very different direction of policy. In fact, as you alluded to, Labour has a lot of splits within it because there are a lot of MPs and a lot of activists who want the party to be much more pro-immigration, who are still grieving the the, the concession of freedom of movement from Brexit, let alone uh, cracking down on illegal immigration, regardless of how angry a lot of Labour voters are about this. So it's complicated for, for Labour and for the I think one of the reasons Rishi Sunak has uh, spent longer than some MPs would like between obviously talking about this in December and now we're in March, even if the weather doesn't feel like it, uh, <laughs> is because there has been toing and froing between the Home Office and Number 10 about how far to go in this legislation because there is a temptation to announce the most drastic things and then get held up in the courts. Now, We'll obviously see the exact detail tomorrow and then it will still be a longer process to know what effect this is going to have and how doable it is. But I think what they're trying to do in number 10 is ultimately pushing it, you know, someone explained to me, pushing it as far as you can go, but also being able to make that legal defence case if it does, as many expect, inevitably end up in the courts. And therefore, Richard has a situation by which, yes, over-promising or promising things on immigration, as we've seen it, 
is no longer enough, I think, to sound shocking or as though you're going to do this drastic thing. And people say, well, the Tories are more serious than Labour on the issue because they want to see some progress. But also Rishi Sunak can't really sit by and just let the problem get much worse. His own, his best hope is really to try something like this. It's just the question is, can you get the two schemes, I think, in tandem as time goes? Because if you can't, as you know, we touched on in this podcast, the thing you're going to hear more about is leaving the ECHR. And this policy does not mean leaving the ECHR. It means some controversial moves on human rights legislation which I think will create a stir and create uh, you know some challenges but it does not mean leaving the ECHR if this gets bogged down in the courts or fails to make any mark I think that is a point when you start to have quite a serious conversation in the Tory party about where they're in the next manifesto they put in leaving the ECHR which you know some has described almost a second Brexit referendum it'd be you know um, someone said to me you know get the boats done right and something I wrote about you know earlier this year there's a question as to whether or not that would um, hold much credibility with the public if they feel nothing else has worked. But then it also could, if, you, if, if you're saying actually the system that currently in doesn't work, it could be something which um, could have some impact. But that is something that would divide the Tory party. And you can almost see it in this dance amongst what various cabinet ministers say. I think that, I, I think from the language of the Attorney General, Victoria Prentice, who is a One Nation Tory who previously backed Rory Stewart to be Tory leader, I do not get the impression that she is particularly keen the UK leaves the ECHR. If you listen to, for example, what someone like Dominic Raab says, they seem more relaxed about it. And I think that this is an attempt by the Tory government to achieve something without doing that if it doesn't work that's the debate we're going to end up in interesting and Isabel what's the latest situation going on with the Sue Gray appointment to become Keir Starmer's chief of staff because over the weekend it does seem like this the fury hasn't died down let me put it that way so there's a process that Sue Gray has to go through with um, a COBA which is the appointments body when you leave the civil service and there is also a round of questions about when Keir Starmer first had contact with Sue Gray about becoming his chief of staff. That has been more uncomfortable I think it's fair to say because the Labour leader is refusing to to give those details and indeed she is meant to have declared as a civil servant that she was talking to the to the leader of the opposition which is not always particularly unusual because you do have channels between the civil service and the opposition, uh, more so in the run-up to an election, it has to be said, rather than in a midterm. But it doesn't seem that that was declared either. And so it, it, it would suggest that a rule has been broken one way or t'other. There's also the wider debate about why Sue Gray decided to leave the civil service and go into a political job. And over the weekend, we had the revelations, um, I think it was on Friday, that she was so angry that an appointment um, to be permanent secretary in the trade department, something that Kemi Badenoch had wanted, had been vetoed by Simon Case. A lot of stories seem to be taking us back to Simon Case at the moment. And um, it seems that this so upset uh, Sue Gray, who... A lot of people who know her will say that she already felt mistreated by the Tories uh, over various government uh, civil service positions over the past few years anyway. And this was clearly the the final straw. And Keir Starmer clearly pounced at a a particularly uh, opportune moment when she was feeling very bruised. There's another narrative that 
some ex-civil servants and sort of people around the civil service have been putting about, which is that actually it was again it's this comes back to Boris Johnson that actually it was it was Boris Johnson's fault because he made Sue Gray so despondent about uh, the way in which government was being conducted uh, that she felt she had to get out and that she had to go and work for someone more honourable. And I think what the other thing it does is we've seen today a flurry of Tory MPs sending in requests for urgent questions, so tabling, trying to table the motion. I think 14 Tory MPs have done this and is ultimately viewed as the Boris Johnson loyalists who are trying to press the issue, not, I would say, entirely for the reasons Isabel's just outlined, but because they want to connect Sue Gray with the Partygate report, which of course she was in charge of, to then uh, cast doubt on the Privileges Committee as an entire process as it starts to move towards Boris Johnson. And that is actually upsetting some Tory colleagues um, with the conflation. Katie and Isabel, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating and a review and tell a friend about it. Why not?